0: episode six Jared Lindson joins us in studio tonight to discuss the future of work
1: there's so much happening now that is uh, so revolutionary yet it's only just the very tip of the iceberg who
2: are the, who are the workers who are in most danger and, and what does that mean for kind of American society going
1: forward? i'm hoping that the sort of move towards this this new world where automation has a much bigger part in 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 every business uh is a gradual move uh, that allows people enough time to to retrain and to figure out what are the skills that are going to be most valuable in this new economy
0: at what point does perhaps even the government local or federal jump in and say "Eh, i don't think we're ready for this technology yet
1: the the comparison that's often made with uh, driverless cars is uh, driverless ele- elevators, which was, that was a thing, you know. So the idea of letting an elevator sort of take control of where you go was really hard psychologically for a long time.
0: Growing population and what that mo- means to food scarcity.
1: Uh, the the two sort of up and coming big sources of protein that not everyone is gonna be comfortable with right now, but might have to be.
0: Put a, put a price tag on that burger, what's that burger cost? <laughs> Episode 6 of TNDC Podcast. For those of you who don't know what TNDC is, it was Thursday Night Drinking Club back in college. But that's, of course, evolved into Thursday Night Discussion and Debate Club. We have the regular hosts back on. So Harold and Cove are here. And, of course, I'm uh, watching the, the lyric go by on GarageBand once again. We also have a very special guest. And I will spare everyone the long PR intro that I usually give on how we're gaining traction. We have we actually have a ton of downloads recently, which is really cool. And a lot of that is sparked by the interview we had with the GOP candidate for governor in the 2018 Colorado race, Doug Robinson, last week. Really fun to talk to him. Encourage you all to listen to episode five. Today is a bit different because uh, we have a speaker, an expert in Uh, technology, media, entertainment. He's a freelance journalist. Jared Lindzen um, is a Toronto-based freelance journalist published in the Toronto Star, Fast Company. Your your whale was the Rolling Stone, as you were were telling us earlier. Um, And tonight, it's not as politically motivated, which is kind of a nice refresher. Uh, We're going to focus on emerging technology and what we're loosely calling the future of work. And so, Jared, really appreciate you coming to our apartment studio and podcasting with us. Thanks for having me. Um, why don't you give, like, a quick minute on your background and, and what you're all about?
1: Totally. Well, right now, I'm all about uh, wishing I was on the previous podcast, The Drinking Club. That sounded like a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but I'll, I guess I'll keep going on this one. Uh, so, yeah, as, as mentioned, uh, my name is Jared Lindzen, a freelance journalist based in uh, Toronto. Uh, kind of started my career writing for uh, some of the bigger publications in Canada, which most Americans haven't heard of, which I'm okay with. Uh, <laughs> I gradually sort of uh, crossed the border, built my career a little bit more in the United States uh, in the last few years. Of have primarily written uh, a lot for Fast Company in the future of work domain, but I've also done uh, a wide diversity of, of different things from uh, politics coverage for Politico, as you mentioned, music coverage for Rolling Stone, uh, Fortune Magazine, The Guardian, Quartz, uh, kind of all over the place, uh, as freelancers need to be these days. but. Uh, yeah. We've
3: definitely heard of those. Yeah.
1: yeah. All right. That's yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, uh, that's, that's the big uh, sort of growth in my career. I went from the, what, what magazine? And to, oh, nice. You yeah. know, that's yeah. <laughs> so happy to be on the other now. side of that now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we had a really interesting conversation over dinner and we're extending that into uh, our podcast here. And where you started, I thought was fascinating with just kind of the nuances of the future of the work environment. Yeah. and, how structures are really starting to flatten out and you had some uh, some stats about work displacement and what technology might mean to uh, a growing organization tell us a little bit more about that
1: yeah absolutely well um I'd say that the the kind of uh, crux of of a lot of what I talk about is the fact that uh, really work was the same in a lot of ways from the industrial revolution until really the invention of the iphone or or maybe the blackberry a little bit before that but uh so many of the conventions that we know uh the nine to five the monday to friday uh the the presence-based work where you show up and you're paid based on presence and advancement exists based on presence and loyalty um so much of that was standard for for i I think a a period of time that we failed to appreciate at times that was that was a hundred years multiple generations where work really didn't change so drastically. I mean, things changed here and there but the the sort of upheaval that we've had in the last five to ten years the way in which work has changed the way in which uh physical presence is no longer a barrier to productivity um this sort of growth of the freelance economy uh and and contractors there's so much happening now that is uh so revolutionary yet it's only just the very tip of the iceberg uh mobile technology which has had such a, a massive impact on the way in which we, we approach the concept of work is really one of the first of many technologies that's starting to become uh, tra- changing the way in which we, we not only do the work, but we think about what work is and, and how it's supposed to play a role in our lives. Um, so some of the technologies I often talk about, uh, big data and uh, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, as well as uh, VR and AR, um, which are becoming very important for, for training purposes, um, and uh, I think all of this is leading to, to a world in which uh, the concept of work is very different, and, and a lot of those conventions that have remained consistent for uh, you know, a century are, are being completely rewritten, and we have the opportunity to, to redefine what work is and and how it should be done. So some of the changes we're already seeing, as you alluded to, uh, is the flattening of a lot of companies. uh, When the idea is that when when startups are able to come in and challenge long established uh, companies and brands, A lot of companies are trying to work more like a startup uh, and reorganizing their companies from the traditional top down structure into more of a team based structure um, where I I mentioned earlier uh, at dinner, the uh, Spotify I like to use as an example, because they they reached a point where they felt that they had become so popular and so big because they were nimble and they could do things that the big, slow companies couldn't. Um, And they were afraid they were losing that sense of innovation when they reached twelve hundred employees. Uh, they're now at 1600, so they created a system whereby uh, everyone works in multi-planet, multidisciplinary teams of eight um, and every uh, group of 100 uh, people within, uh, basically, uh, th- those teams, sorry, there'll be a, a team of eight people who are from different departments with different backgrounds but have the same goal, and they're all working together for that same goal. Um, and then th- they'll be housed with uh, other teams of eight, sort of like in an incubator style, where they all have similar mandates and similar projects but not quite the same. Um, and so they're trying to keep this this startup-like mentality and the startup-like structure because that nimbleness, that ability to, to try things, and to change um, that gets lost once a company reaches a certain size they acknowledge that and more and more companies are starting to go in that direction with a, a flatter structure uh, and more of an interdisciplinary team structure um, and as a result what people are looking for in employees and what people are looking for in in management and executives is also being completely rewritten now you can stop me here or i can keep going so, you so like. I'm, 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 I'm gonna to right, and right let's and, jump and, right in and just
2: chat about a couple of things you raised so hit me um and, and before we go any further, I, I love Spotify as an example, and and uh, you can keep pulling out more companies that have yet to make a profit as examples of <laughs> the future of work and the future of business. Um, I think it's always uh, always fascinating when big companies that make a lot of money uh, uh, try to be schooled by companies that haven't figured out exactly what business is about yet. So um, All right. we can we can dive into that. Um, I'm really interested in, in, in kind of how you see the evolution of the workplace and 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 kind of what work means. And especially if you see that, you know, with maybe touching the tip of the iceberg, but I see maybe a little bit of a backlash towards remote working and, and kind of what technology does. You used to be saw, you know, when Marissa Meyer took over Yahoo, she mm. kind of for, forbade working from home, brought everyone back into the office. And there seems to be these, these two ideologies of is we want to be a team. We want to be collaborative. We want to facilitate as much interaction and communication and collaboration as possible. You know, to the extent of, you know, we're talking over dinner about, that mere managers you know, need to be sitting in the middle of an open plan office and engaging right. with all the people around them and then so that's kind of bringing people together and then this idea that actually people can be separate in a completely yeah. different locations how do businesses manage those two different kind of pushes and pulls yeah on integrating the workforce more and becoming more collaborative and, and less hierarchical and also potentially being more spread out geographically?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think that the answer that a lot of uh, companies would offer to that is is technology is bridging that gap. Uh, communication technology in particular but you know having a team-wide Slack channel uh, isn't necessarily any worse than sitting next to the people that you probably wouldn't be you know tapping on the shoulder and having a conversation with. A lot of people say that they'd prefer to have a Slack conversation with somebody who works down the hall with them than actually get up and go over there and walk to them. So what's the difference if that person's in their own apartment? There have actually been studies that that looks into this and uh, you know it's it's never one of the two extremes it's never you know the the answer first of all the answer is going to be different for different companies based on how they operate what they do and and what they want of their culture and of their people um but generally speaking organizations that have looked into this consulting firms that have studied this they've they've determined that approximately two to three days a week two and a half ideally um out of the office uh is ideal in terms of the work-life balance the uh, career satisfaction while maintaining that sort of loyalty and the connection to the rest of the organization. So uh, having that sort of all or nothing mentality uh, might not necessarily be of service, but being more flexible, not completely flexible and not being completely rigid, but finding that sort of balance letting technology fill the gap and figuring out based on your culture and your values and your industry and your you know what you're trying to accomplish what works best for for your organization so you know what works for spotify won't work for everybody um and and what works for goldman sachs won't work for everybody uh it really is company specific the idea is that there's now options on the table uh and now companies are able to tinker with different structures to figure out what works best for them
3: so one of the things that i found really interesting is so i worked at ge mm. uh before coming to business school very much like an industrial company yeah. but I, I don't know at what level it plays into our discussion but one thing that i saw is before coming to business school is they started transforming into a digital industrial technology company mm-hmm. and as such they started giving people unlimited like pto started being more flexible in terms of in certain functions people mm-hmm. being able to work from home and started to think more kind of like software kind of technology companies. And I started noticing that sort started benchmarking companies like Google and Silicon Valley. Interesting enough, I spent my summer at, at Google this summer and found kind of at least how they kind of go after things which is much like the things that you were speaking. Mm-hmm. And do you think it has a lot to do with this whole kind of, tra- you were kind of speaking to it earlier, this whole transformation into all companies need to think more like se- software technology companies. And as a result, the way you work just naturally changes, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, I, I think it's it's because of the, rapid advancement of technology and because disruption is is a reality, no matter how insulated uh, any industry thinks they are, disruption can always be around the corner and disruption is going to come in the form of, of a startup or, or a, a new idea or a new technology. They need to be on the forefront of those new technologies and they need internal startups to sort of come up with the ideas that perhaps a large, bulky organization uh, isn't able to, to experiment with. You know, the, the idea of failing quickly and learning from your mistakes is, is so prominent in Silicon Valley and not really, it's starting to spread. Spread elsewhere, um, but but companies that are too rigid and don't allow that space for experimentation, experiment and, and failure, um, are are ultimately leaving themselves open to disruption by smaller and more nimble organizations.
2: So one of, one of one of the things we really picked up on on over dinner was this idea of of, of what that disruption can therefore mean for the workforce itself. Yeah, and we had these statistics that you. Know, anywhere between seven percent and fifty percent of the US workforce could be potentially displaced by yeah. some form of automation or technology. I first that's a huge range, so it'd be nice to kind of dig into kind of where mm-hmm. those two extremes can come from. But also just I'd like to understand maybe what the like the sociological consequences of that might be. Who are the who are the workers who are in most danger, and, and what does that mean for kind of American society going forward? do You
1: think? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a lot of a lot of stuff in there to unpack. So um, I'm trying to think of where where should I begin there. And let's uh, start let's
2: start with the numbers. Like, where, where do these where do these come from? And you know, yeah. What, what, so, what the, what's the research that kind of backs that up? Because like, yeah, ha- yeah, half yeah,
1: half of workers unemployed. And, you know, that's. So, I mean, the the interesting thing is that there's there's extremely reputable organizations, ranging from you know uh, these global organizations like like the uh, World Bank and IOC, and and then you know Deloitte and. KPMGs of the world, and, and they're all coming out with their own studies and their own numbers to to talk about this idea of uh, job displacement as a result of automation. Um, and the numbers range so wildly that that people sort of in, in the circles that I talk about are almost afraid to quote any of them um, because they they range from the the overly optimistic to the overly pessimistic. There's also a time range issue where you know if you say fifty percent of the uh, econ- of the workforce will be displaced, is that in the next five years, in the next fifty years, um, and and some of these studies that look into it don't necessarily specify. Other studies that I find also interesting, um, the one that says that that it's gonna be closer to 7% also says that approximately uh, half of a, a person's daily duties will be automated, but that doesn't mean that the person necessarily can be replaced. It just means that their job is going to get easier and the thinking goes that they'll be able to do more higher level uh, work when they're not stuck doing the the sort of data entry or the repetitive stuff that a computer could probably do more accurately and, and better. Um, so, you know, the, the first place where job displacement is going to happen is, is in those very repetitive tasks um, that honestly people who do them generally don't like them. Um, not to say that they, you know, would prefer to not have a job, but uh, a lot of the the more repetitive tasks are the ones that, that people are kind of hoping get get replaced, even if that means that their their department's a little bit smaller at the end of the day. Um, so, what I would say, what I'm seeing generally speaking is is um, the innovations that are coming out aren't fully replacing people; they're just making less people necessary for the same job. Um, and and I, I'm hoping that the sort of move towards this this new world where automation has a much bigger part in, in, in every business uh, is a gradual move uh, that allows people enough time to, to retrain and to figure out what are the skills that are going to be most valuable in this new economy. Um, the issue would, would come if, if it happens really quickly and people don't have the time to, to adapt. Uh, in terms of areas that might be more safe, there's still things that, that humans can do a lot better than, than machines can, at least at this point. Um, you know, anything to do with creativity, uh, things, especially with uh, cross-domain thinking, being able to take ideas from, from far-off places and, and put them together, uh, and being an expert in multiple areas. Uh, you know, there's there's certain, you know, there's there's also a lot of uh, human-facing fields where, where people won't accept an automated replacement. Uh, you know, a lot of customer service some of the easy tasks. I was talking earlier at dinner about um, Marriott is, is rolling out a, uh, a pilot where you can, text uh, a number and basically ask any question that you'd want to ask a concierge service, at least the basic questions. So you can text it, you know, uh, where's the closest, you know, uh, taxi stand or whatever it is. And, and that actually, that's not a question that the concierge sitting at the front desk wants you to wait in line to have to answer. It should be something that should be available. Um, or, you know, what time does this restaurant close, whatever it may be. Um, so it's, I, I, there's but you wouldn't want to not have that person at the front desk. I, I don't think people would be okay with just having the automated option. Um so I, again, I think it's it's the the numbers that assume that there will be uh, the, the higher numbers, the, the more uh, pessimistic numbers, I think, don't take that into account. That there's a lot of places where people won't accept automation to replace humans. Um, but at the same time, you know, a, a lot of jobs are going to get easier for the people that are in it. And more is going to be expected from them and less people are going to be required to do them in, in a lot of cases.
0: Well, and how many times do you call a, an 800 number and you hear a robot and you just can't stand? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just can't stand that you have to talk, you know, through a menu of options to finally get to an actual human. And, and, the, and they've I think studied Southwest, that quite a
1: bit and people, people actually are more likely to hang up and, and you know be yeah. upset with the brand if they have to go through that and so they're reverting back to, to human call centers yeah, for and that I think, reason. I, I think I Southwest, f- they have yeah. a
0: very short menu to just, are you booking a flight? Are you, can, you know, very short and then it directs you to a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, d-
2: I, d- I do find with a lot of these... Um, Super menu options, kind of the the, the the frustrate you. If you shout very loudly, I want to speak to a human. Many like, over and over, over again here. down the line. Yeah, yeah. you actually get to. About, you, it takes yeah. about four shouts. Yeah, and then <laughs> then you do actually get to a human. They kind of the, the, I've the done a study on that. Yeah, the, the computer system kind of works out that they've got a very irate person on the phone. Yeah. And they should probably speak to a, an actual human and kind of bypasses whatever. Programming is there is like this this we need to speak to a
1: human. Yeah, well, there's definitely places where, where we as customers and you know, we're not gonna accept having a robot replacing a lot of human facing interactions that, that we've come accustomed to. I mean, even the grocery stores that try to replace uh, cashiers with automated, you know, the, the self scanning, self checkout things, um, they at first were super excited and, and started pushing them out everywhere and realized that, you know, even when there's a lineup for to, to deal with a human, a lot of people would prefer to wait in line and deal with a human than have to scan all the items themselves. So I, I think uh, some of the the more uh, the less conservative estimates about job loss don't take that into account. Um, so I'm hoping it won't be as bad as, as the 50% mark and that has been quoted. And
0: when we talk about job displacement, yeah. of course, there's a flip side to new opportunities as well. So, if, so if you're on the, the, the low end, that 7%, who's to say that that doesn't create twice that 14%, 15% mm-hmm. more opportunities for people right. to get? to get work is that are there studies that kind of show that more optimistic view that um, you're aware of or
1: you know the the closest comparison i can make is that there's a lot of historical data that shows how uh you know the agriculture industry kind of it was the biggest employer for a you know, long part of human history and then manufacturing started to slowly take over and then and it became the most dominant, uh, you know, uh, employer in, in the U.S. economy. And now that is sort of phasing out and other things are starting to replace it. And so when you look at those sorts of graphs, you see that that net employment is generally consistent, even though the fields uh, that people are employed in are, are changing drastically. So it that gives me a sense of optimism. Again, it really depends on the speed at which a lot of this uh, innovation happens. And, and it's weird to be on the side of cheering for slow innovation. But um, the more time people have to sort of get a sense of, you know, my industry is going in a certain direction that's not sustainable. Uh, I better take this opportunity to, to find a new avenue. Uh, if, if there's a bit more time, then people will have the opportunity to, to adjust. Uh, if it happens rapidly, then we might be in for trouble.
2: And, and and we've seen this, you know, in, in every one of those shifts from kind of an agrarian to a, to an yeah. industrial um, economy. You know, you you had you know kind of luddites and 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 um, a kind of a, a backlash against that. You know, we, yeah. we've seen it recently. You know, really, it's you know it's probably you know our parents' generation that were kind of the manufacturing to services transition, and and we've seen a large number of people left behind by that as well. So yeah, even when it doesn't happen as as, as kind of as rapidly as perhaps this technological change might. While, imp- while employment does grow, there are definitely new opportunities. There are certain sections of the population that are always left behind by Absolutely. this. And I and I think that's something that maybe we need to learn from kind of those big seismic shifts that have happened in the past and understand how, you know, it, it's all very well saying that, you know, people will have the opportunity to retrain. Some people just can't, you know, can't retrain so well, or, or, or can't move or can't relocate or there are always going to be people who are left behind. And so I think that's going to be an interesting challenge for, for the future is how does society cope with the inevitable section of the population that is either unable, unwilling to retrain and convert, you know, as there has been every single time we've had this type yeah. of shift.
1: I mean, it's, it's never a smooth transition. There is inevitably people left behind. I and mean, that's where the conversation uh, about universal basic income often comes in, because that is is usually looked at. It's, it's being taken a lot more seriously now, because that is sort of considered one of the potential answers to, to what do you do about all those who are left behind, um, who, who can't take the time off to retrain and, and find a new path um. The idea is, if you give them a, a small sum that's enough to survive on, um, and you give that to every member of society, no, no matter how much they make, um, it gives people the opportunity to to sort of fill the gap. I'm also all a little bit encouraged by the rate at which uh, innovation is taking place in the education. Uh, you know, it's not that. There was a time where if you wanted to change industries, you had to, you know, put four years into learning, you know, where to go. Now you can take uh, crash courses in a lot of fields and be employed in, in three months, uh, you know, out um, for, for not a crazy amount of money. Um, so the opportunities are more readily available. Again, that does a little bit depend on on where you're based and what's available to you in terms of resources. But um, the education is is a lot more attainable now um, and and there's there's ways that people can sort of upskill and train that that didn't exist for those other transitions from, you know, agrarian or manufacturing in the past.
0: So if we transition a little bit because we've talked about AI uh job displacement, one of the softball but also top of mind conversations mm-hmm. are the driverless cars or yep. dri- driverless car yeah, driverless yeah, yeah, cars. Yeah, you got that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you got it. And so And I think it might even introduce somewhat of a a safety and policy discussion as well, because as soon as people start sitting in the back of a driverless car in certain scenarios, maybe, you know, black ice that a car might not be able to recognize. And at what point do or does uh, perhaps even the government, local or federal jump in and say, "Eh, I don't think we're ready for this technology yet? Mm.
1: Well, I... I can speak specifically to the driverless car thing if you'd like because i find that super interesting um and th- the the comparison that's often made with uh, driverless cars is uh, driverless ele- elevators which was w- that was a thing you know there used right, to be right, an elevator right. operator yeah. who yeah, would yeah, close yeah, yeah. the thing and push the True. button and make sure that the the floor actually matched with the door because it didn't just stop automatically at the exact spot and when elevators became automated a lot of people were not comfortable of being in a box by themselves and trusting that if they push the button they'll end up on the floor that they're supposed to Uh, and so the idea of letting an elevator sort of take control of where you go was really hard psychologically for a long time which is why a lot of the times uh, the first institutions to introduce uh, elevators that could operate by themselves would actually have a guy sitting there just so you'd feel a little bit more comfortable who would push the button for you and and still you get that in some fancy institutions to this day Um, but that's that's where that started because people weren't comfortable giving up all the agency to the the machine so to speak but now the idea of being afraid to step into an elevator because it's unmanned seems crazy to us and I think that is where uh, the automotive industry is going and you mentioned you know the issue of you know what if there's a patch of black ice but I think once the stats start coming out about uh, human error versus the the freak accidents that uh, automated you know machine might have uh, might might endure I, I think the the Accident rate is going to plummet. Um, There might still be some unforeseen incidents that not even the technology is able to prevent, but a vast majority of uh, collisions are caused by human error. And if you take that out of the equation, then that's a bit of a different story. I also think that the first generation of driverless cars will have a steering wheel and the ability to manually override it. I think that will like the elevator operator eventually disappear.
0: Just kind of security blanket for the, it, the it just is
1: psychologically. If you get yeah. into the car and there's no steering wheel, you really feel like you have absolutely no control. If there's a steering wheel in there that you don't even touch it, but it's there. And like psychologically you think, yeah. you know, if, if things happen, I can grab the wheel and take control.
0: Yeah. And it'll be interesting to listen to this episode, like 20 years from now when, <laughs> when, yeah, when we're just <laughs> sitting in a driverless yeah. car, but but there, there are issues. For example, if a deer is crossing the road or a squirrel in the... In the, the car's in the, the, the reaction
1: time is much better than mine. No, I
0: understand that. But but in some <laughs> scenarios, it's best just to hit it. Like right. It, because otherwise, you know, you, you start swerving, your car gets out of control, whereas if you just plow through the animal, which is unfortunate for the animal, obviously, but it, that's what you're so, trained to do in driver's ed, for well, example. Well, okay,
1: but, but the difference between human instinct and uh, what the machine is able to learn from that simulation taking place a million times over and figuring out based on the trajectory of the car and the size of the deer and, and things that we couldn't possibly calculate in a split second that the machine is able to do for us, I actually think that situation becomes safer. And that
3: that the other machines in motion will be... Exactly, great. yeah.
1: Um, and they yeah. all sort of are in sync with each other. Uh, so people have alf- often asked, you know, how does driverless cars increase car uh, the road capacity is because the cars can be driving you know 150 an inch apart and if one stops you know 50 miles ahead the rest of them kind of go in in tandem because they're all connected with each other so um, I I think there are a few things that might feel a little bit you know uncomfortable thinking about certain situations of how would a machine handle it but I I also think that this wouldn't be uh, this isn't going to become available to the mass market until it's been tested through the roof. And and available like you know, to the point where it, it, statistics show that it's way safer than than any human operator.
0: Yeah, and I think um, I think that all good points. And I think the first automotive sub industry, I guess you call it, would be shipping. For example, I mean, mm. semi drivers yeah. going long distances across you know interstate from east west whatever, and I mean that that would be uh, to my in my opinion the first area to displace well, the driver's
1: already got a uh, driverless truck that has made uh trips across europe yeah um and that's that's a, a big area that that i think you, you know s- you a lot of put people in folk-
0: autopilot and yeah for at 75 miles an hour well just so the ride.
1: cio i believe it was the cio or the cto had a really interesting test and they filmed it and it became this this volvo commercial that was really famous in europe where they had a, a truck driving full speed and stopped two inches from the guy standing there the guy who designed the artificial intelligence that was behind the wheel, uh, he risked his life uh, because he was so confident that it would acknowledge his his presence and stop on a dime uh, before hitting him. And there's a video of it online and it has become a popular commercial for Volvo. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's already happening.
2: Yeah. And th- this, this brings us to another, another topic that um, kind of follows on that you were talking earlier that kind of disruption is now the new norm. Any industry yeah. can be disrupted and this is now something that, that, that every company in every space is going to have to adapt themselves to. And there was something you, you said at, at dinner, which kind of struck me as, as something that I'm not sure I 100% agree with. That, That's all right. That uh, a company of eight people can beat out a company of 8,000 or, or right. 80,000. And I just want to kind of dig into this a little bit. I, I, you know, my, my instinct is that however much eight people can, you know, and, and I believe that eight people with a great idea can change the world in order for that to really be a kind of a a commercial force, there needs to be the kind of the the workforce behind it. There needs to be the capital behind it. There needs to be that kind of, that infrastructure. And that is not something that can happen overnight from eight people. I'm not
1: saying that it it can happen overnight, but I'm saying that um, the biggest challenger to a long established company right now might be a company of eight people. And I'm not saying today that they're going to, uh completely you know topple this this long-standing company but i'm saying that their their biggest competitor isn't the other eighty thousand company next door their biggest competitor might be the eight-person company that is innovating and doing things that they wouldn't imagine doing um you know like there's so many examples out there i mean netflix was eight people when blockbuster had a stop a shop on every corner um, you know, the, the taxi industry, uh, the hotel industry, I mean, there's a lot of places where, you know, the music industry, there's a lot of places where little startups that, that began as a few people with a crazy idea that, you know, they had nothing to lose and just went all in and, and pursued that idea to the end has toppled, not just 80,000 person companies, but industries.
2: So, so there, there are two really good examples that are, that I think are kind of worth thinking into. So one of them, you said that the taxi industry, yeah. um, and the music industry. These are now industries that have been gone from generating a lot of money and, and and generating kind of huge profits for for people to live off. These are now two industries that struggle to to make a dime. Totally. So they've been disrupted, but I don't know if that's helped, you know, anyone. In, in that these are new two industries that have gone from being mainstays of, of local economies to now industries that are near the verge of collapse because they can't make a they can't make a profit.
1: Well. Yeah, I, I would agree, but I, I don't think you want to, you know, hold back the development of the light bulb to spare the candle making industry. You know, like it's... it, it, it. If there's a way to make something more efficient, better for the consumer, and if the consumers react to, to something as being a, a smarter, better, cheaper option, I would actually argue that the uh, taxi industry and the music industry, before they were disrupted, were really bloated and had uh, a way too much control over the cu- customers. And that, generally speaking, customers weren't happy with the, the deal, and that left room for disruption. People thought they were paying too much for taxis and that it was a really inconvenient process. People thought the music industry was robbing them blind by charging 25 bucks for a CD. Um, You know, it's, it's, I think that when you aren't when you have a monopoly, you don't need to be as efficient as possible. Uh, and then all of a sudden you get greedy. Uh, and then someone comes up with a better way of doing what you're doing. And yeah, it sucks for the cab drivers and it sucks for the, the small-time musicians. But uh, it is ultimately better for society as a whole, better for the consumer. And it leads to a, a sort of more streamlined, more efficient, and, and probably longer-lasting industry in the long run.
2: But then what happens when... Uber shuts down because it runs out of cash and runs out of money and suddenly you can't get a cab because everyone well, uses I, I Uber think, and...
1: I think the bigger issue is what happens to all the cab drivers when, uh, all this investment Uber is putting into self-driving cars, uh, hits the road and, and puts out all their drivers out of work. I, I'm actually way more concerned with that. Um, I, I don't have an answer. <laughs> I, I think, I think it's really unfortunate for the Uber driver who is, who is earning money for the company that is working really hard to put them out of work. Um, Again, that's at the end of the day, that's going to be safer, more efficient, cheaper for the consumer. And ultimately, that's the way the market's going to go. And yes, a lot of people are going to be left behind as a result. But in the long run, that's the march of progress Uh, that that's arguably better for society. um, And and so I wouldn't want to stop it.
2: Uh, Uber might well stop itself. It might run out, well, <laughs> run out of cash way <laughs> well before it Google ever gets a, be, uh, a driverless car. With uh, their driverless cars. yeah there's only so there's only so many years you can lose two billion dollars and still <laughs> stay operating afterwards. So uh,
1: well, Travis is out, so we'll see what happens. Little does Jared know that Cove did a soapbox
0: about tech valuations in episode two. <laughs> oh wow. it's, a, it's a topic that he's very passionate about. So right. <laughs> <laughs> it, hey, I'm, not, I'm not I'm not saying, saying that tech valuations
1: is. are anywhere where they should be. <laughs> All right. I'm um, I, I totally there's there's I am of the belief that there is a bubble in Silicon Valley. And I can tell you, as as a Canadian and, and being in the Canadian tech ecosystem where they're just totally blown away by the amount of money that's being given to, to tech companies there. And the, the Toronto companies are working so much harder uh, with, you know, equally viable ideas that are getting a fraction, uh, if, if at all, of the investment. Um, I think that. Everywhere outside of Silicon Valley, the places that are struggling to find that investment are actually about a better representation of where the valuation should be. I think Silicon Valley is way overblown in a lot of areas. And,
2: and actually, I would argue that those companies are more likely to be the ones that are, have the longevity and disrupt the market because totally. they're the ones that will learn how to make a profit and therefore be yep. sustainable and, they need and actually to be, be viable. And they'll, you know, they'll be, they'll be viable businesses long after, yeah, you know, kind of ideas from Silicon Valley that VCs have thrown millions and billions of dollars out, have burned through that cash and still have no idea how to turn a profit. Uh, I so. would
1: agree. Yeah, no, no, being lean and mean is, is really important for a small company. And, and when you're given a, a blank check or the equivalent of a blank check by a, a massive company or an investor in, in the Valley, uh, yeah, the motivation to, to innovate, or at least it it makes that, that, it takes away from the scrappiness that I think ultimately is their biggest advantage.
0: Yeah, I couldn't Let, agree more. Let's move on to one more topic and then we can relieve Jared of sitting here <laughs> with us. Um the growing population was a fascinating conversation right yeah. there today. Growing population and what that mo- means to food scarcity and fabricated foods and lab developed stuff. Yeah. And it just sounds terrible. <laughs> but but that's that's the direction we're headed, right? You're
2: yeah. talking about the most expensive burger ever made.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um yeah just to sort of recap the conversation we were having before um, population growth and the, the amount of resources available per person, uh, is, it's not sustainable, especially with our eating habits today. Uh, and, and so protein scarcity, uh, as well as water scarcity, um, are becoming top of mind issues in a way that they weren't, you know, a lot of folks say that the, uh, future wars will be fought over fresh water, um, because that is going to become a, a really valuable resource as the population continues to explode. Uh, and we had begun discussing, uh, the, the two sort of up and coming big sources of, protein that not everyone is going to be comfortable with right now but might have to be um is bugs and lab-grown meat Uh, those are two untapped generally sources of protein that are very plentiful plentiful uh sustainable um and starting to actually you know and slowly but surely enter into the the conversation as being a possibility i mean there's some fine dining restaurants in manhattan that'll have bugs on the menu um <laughs> and there is uh the the world's most expensive burger was grown in a lab um by a, a man named dr post uh based in the netherlands uh a journalist friend of mine uh his name's josh shanwald based out of chicago was one of three people to to try uh this in vitro meat burger I asked him how it tasted he said it it lacked fat which made a real difference in the taste but otherwise it tasted like beef um, and no animal had to die and no uh, massive amounts of water and food had to be Provided to that animal over the course of years in order to to grow it to a point where it was available for human consumption um, and so there's been a lot of investment actually he was he was expecting to, uh, Dr. Post is expecting a really long timeline and and not expecting a lot of interest and money in this. Uh, Silicon Valley has actually taken to it and put a lot of money behind it and the development of in vitro meat as it's called or lab grown meat um, is is really speeding up. Uh, and that is one of the potential answers to to the, the looming uh, population explosion.
0: Put a put a price tag on that burger. What's that burger cost? I think it was like a, was about a half a million dollar it burger. Was, it was 300000
1: like, $300,000. $300,000. <laughs> uh, I think it was uh, maybe it had been a three fifty, but somewhere in that range. Yeah. Um, and it took them, you know, years to make sure. this one first prototype just as a, a proof of concept. But um, once they had the first one and they confirmed that, you know, no one got poisoned from it and that it's edible and that it actually kind of tastes like beef and they figured out they do need a little bit more fat content in there and they figured out how to develop that in a lab as well and, and mix it in uh with the ground in vitro meat um i think things are going to happen in that space very quickly and and i know there's going to be a psychological gap with both insects and lab grown meat i also know that there are well maybe not in in america but uh, the rest of the world might have not have a choice um or or at least uh you know traditional meat and protein sources might become a lot more expensive and the uh alternatives that you know potentially taste the same uh, might be way less expensive in the future
2: so one one, one direction that the, this conversation kind of took over over dinner that i thought, that I thought was very interesting was this idea that as population grows and grows, and you know is expected to hit maybe ten billion people by you know in, in the next couple of decades, mm. and tying that back to the conversation we we're having about automation and how automation is getting better, is getting cheaper. You know, there seems to be almost this kind of race to the bottom of kind of how 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 cheap is a human or how cheap can a human right. go um, to compete with both automation and also just when the supply base of human labor and human capital is so. Is so large, especially in in the kind of developing world. Yeah, yeah. You know, how how much? Suddenly, how much value is is, 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 is is you know kind of human command?
1: Yeah, and, and I I don't really have a good answer to that, but I, I totally agree that you know the the supply is is definitely uh, outpacing the demand. The demand's going in one direction, the supply's going in a very opposite direction. When it comes to human labor, and, and again, that is one of the arguments that people put forward for universal basic income um, as as a way of sort of uh, you know if if all the profits in the future are going to go to the companies that have automated everyone else's job out of existence, perhaps there should be uh, some kind of you know, tax or penalty or, or way in which that the massive amounts of wealth that are going to result from that eventually end up, you know, in the pockets of those who, who it's displacing and leaving behind. Uh, that's going to be, uh, I think, a pressing question for, for governments and society as a whole to, to start addressing in the future.
3: I think Elon Musk is taking care of this. He? He's he's, he's talking a lot about
1: and... universal basic income. He's one of the big proponents. I mean, th- listen, a lot of a lot of the, the brightest minds in tech, uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, Bill Gates, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, they're all behind the universal basic income, um, which that is a whole other conversation of itself, but, uh, they are looking at that as a, as a potential solution.
0: Fascinating conversation and totally different from the first five episodes, not incredibly controversial or anything, but just what the future of work. I think it's really cool. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Jared, thank you very much for coming in and talking with us. Um, we sign off every episode, regardless of how controversial the topics are, by saluting the troops overseas for preserving our First Amendment right to discuss policy issues publicly. So, cheers to all of them, and and to our allies in Canada. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we yeah, absolutely. Cannot forget <laughs> our add. allies in I'm, and I'm the, the UK and yeah, the UK, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah very, <laughs> very internationally <Yeah>. diverse <laughs> crew here. <laughs> um, all right, thanks again, and. Big guest lined up for our it might be the finale next week
2: for for this year I think so for, yeah
0: yeah so big guest lined up and uh actually a few guests for that show over and out
1: I like to make
0: myself